Well, good morning again. I'd love to invite you to return to your seats and remain standing, as is our custom. We're going to read God's Word together from, from John chapter 12 this morning. So if you would, give your attention to God's Word. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard, uh, that they heard he had done this sign. So, that, so the Pharisees said to one another, See, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would strengthen us, your people, as we come to your word. Send your spirit to us that we might have open eyes and ears and hearts to receive that which you have for us. We pray that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is one of my favorite Sundays of the year, not only because of the cute children who seem to scream more than they sing, um, but uh, because I love this passage. I, I love that we come to this passage every year, and I especially love John's account of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem because it's, it's filled with a lot of imagery and um, and drama. In fact, one of the things that you see in John's particular account is that he has these literary contrasts that run through the passage. So what I thought we would do this morning is just look at a couple of these contrasting images and, uh, and let that guide us into uh, perhaps some reflection on what that means for us. So let's look at his uh, account together. You can imagine the scene that John is painting for us. It is the Passover week, Sunday of Passover week, and the roads into Jerusalem would have been packed full. It would have been full of people traveling in with carts carrying uh, luggage and other items. There would have been animals on the roads, full families, and whole towns would have been coming in together. Jerusalem was a town of about 170,000 people, which was good-sized at this time. But some estimates, historians give estimates that it may have swelled during Passover week, some say even as high as over two million people. Now I'm not sure that's quite right, but whatever it is, there is a huge amount of people coming into the city uh, for Passover. It's a, a scene of life and vitality. And amidst the crowd, the ministry of Jesus has gotten a lot of attention because just a few weeks or maybe even months beforehand, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, 
Lazarus was the guy from the suburbs of Jerusalem, from Bethany, and he had become ill. He was a fairly young man, and Jesus had gone and raised him from the dead. You can imagine that everybody was talking about this. All of the uh, TV stations, Twitter was a buzz in Jerusalem at this time, I'm sure. And, uh, and so people were talking about this, and we read that they knew that Jesus was coming, but then when they figured out that Lazarus was with Jesus, that was extra incentive for them to go out to see Jesus. And so the crowds have gone out towards Bethany to greet Jesus as he's coming in. It's something like what John is giving us a picture of something like a victorious warrior coming back to his home city after a great victory. That's the picture we're supposed to get. But not everybody loved this, right? Uh, the chief priests were told, the uh, folks who would have been the religious leaders, the pastors and seminary professors of the day did not care for this. Look at the beginning of our passage. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The chief priests hated Jesus and Lazarus because they were taking all of the attention. All of the attention was off of them and was on to Jesus. Not just that they were attention hogs, but you can imagine the kind of fear and the kind of lack of control that they were experiencing. They had worked hard to to secure their position in the very center of society. They were the ones who set the morality for the people in Israel. They were the ones who set out what the values and the way that people interacted with one another and interacted with God, what it looked like. And now this upstart rabbi was coming in and he was upsetting all of that. He was taking their privileged place at the center of society and they felt marginalized. And they were fearful. They were anxious and angry. And their response was to plot murder. And not just any murder, but can you imagine the the unconscionable, (laughs) I can't say that word, unconscionable cruelty of that plotted murder, of Lazarus. If there's one thing that's true in our world, it's that you die. All of your plans, all of your successes in this world will crumble under the pain of death. It is an absolute fact, and Jesus has come in, and he has taken that absolute fact, and he has said there is something more foundational at work in this world than death, and it's right here in Lazarus. And the chief priests are so threatened, are so fearful of losing what they had established in society at that time that they're willing to, they're willing to steal that life. And the contrast is between Jesus and the religious leaders, the, the king of life, the one who bestows life upon people, the one who gives life, and the ones who hate life, who want their position as much as they want anything else. It's a big contrast. 
But then Jesus comes in, and the other gospel writers, they all record this. They uh, record that Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him into Jerusalem, and he said, you're going to find a, a donkey, and I want you to bring it to me. And so they bring the donkey out, and Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem. And, you know, a donkey is apparently the way that Jesus wanted to present his own kingship. What is the nature of his kingdom going to look like? Well, it's going to look like a donkey is what he's communicating. No self-respecting warrior would ride into their home city on a donkey. They would come on some sort of war horse, a noble steed. Uh, coming from some movie or another. And they would come in and they would show forth strength and power and majesty. They would show forth their desire to enable the strong to, uh, to lead victoriously into, against the enemies. And what Jesus is doing is something different. Jesus is not riding in showing how strong he is. He's coming in showing the character of what his kingdom will look like. The character of the war horse is one of strength and of might and of power in this world. And he comes in with humility, with weakness. He comes showing that the people that he is coming to redeem are the weak and the powerless and the needy and the hopeless. In fact, he does so, we're told, that it is just as it was written, verse 14 and verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a, a quote from Zechariah chapter 9. We read it in our call to worship. And Zechariah is prophesying a king that would come. And that king, he describes the king riding in on a donkey. And Zechariah gives us two descriptors of what that king will look like. The first one is, he will come and he will set captives free. Those who are enslaved to sin and to death and any number of slaveries, even as Tom just prayed about today, he will set captives free. And the second thing he will do is he will establish peace by ending warfare through all nations. That's the king that Zechariah is talking about, and that's who Jesus is coming in as. He wants people to see that I am that king that Zechariah is prophesying. I am the gentle king that is coming. I'm not the one on the war horse. I'm coming in as a gentle king to bring grace and mercy and peace. It's a contrast, the donkey and the war horse. There's another contrast. As Jesus came in, uh, his disciples didn't really understand all of this. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had been done to him. When Jesus was glorified, what does John mean there? Well, what he means is that when this full story of Jesus was told, Remember, this is Sunday of Passover week. Uh, by the end of the week, you would have the Passover meal, and we remember all of the things that happened that week that Jesus was betrayed, and then he was arrested. He was punished unjustly. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He was raised again, and then 40 days later, or 50 days later, he ascended. Or 40 days later, he ascended. And 
what, we, what John is saying is that when the full story of Jesus was told, then, and only then, as Jesus returned back to his Father, as the Spirit was poured out upon them, did they understand all these things. They didn't get it. They didn't see what Jesus was after. They expected Jesus to ride into Jerusalem and ride straight down to the king's palace. But Jesus, on his noble mule, wasn't riding down to the palace. Jesus was riding to the cross, wasn't he? They didn't see that. They didn't understand that Jesus' plan all along never included him going to the king's throne. It always included his death and his resurrection because that was the way that Jesus was going to bring about the blessing of God. They thought that God's blessings were the solutions to their temporal problems, the political solutions that they were experiencing. And those would have been great solutions. They needed solutions for those problems. But Jesus is coming in to solve problems that they haven't even realized they have. He's coming in to solve eternal and cosmic problems that they were unaware of. And that's why the crowds cry out in verse 13 is so prophetic and ironic. They took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's ironic because these same crowds will yell crucify, but it's also ironic because they don't even realize what they are asking for. They're singing out Psalm 118, which every Jewish person during Passover week would be singing. It would have been on their lips and on their minds, and so it's natural that it would come out right now, but they don't realize that what they're doing at that moment is calling out for God's blessing upon them in a bigger way than they even understood. They're asking that God would come into the world and solve the primary problem of this world. And that is the problem of us. The problem of the unconscionable damage that we do to one another, the violence and the hatred and the wickedness that we impart upon one another the pain and loss and wickedness of our own personal sins and failures that seem to cling to us like glue. The pain of loss and death that is inescapable in our world. In fact, our world is a world that is devoid of real blessing. Oh sure, we have the blessings of wealth. We live in America after all. But wealth leaves you wanting. We have the blessings of family and relationships, but those provide just as much trouble as they do happiness. We have the blessings of being able to accomplish things in our world. We can give all kinds of things that we call blessings, but none of those things actually touch the fundamental reality of this world. Nothing changes the fact that you and I live in a world of wickedness and violence and death, and we cannot do anything to stop it. And they're calling out, Hosanna, come save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is this one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the reality is, they're saying something more than they even knew. Because Jesus has already been called the blessed one. 
You remember when his heavenly father, twice during Jesus' lifetime, breaks through the distance between God and man and speaks. And you remember what God the Father says? This is my beloved son. Some commentators rephrase that to say, this is my blessed son. He is the one who is the object of my love. He is the one who is all of my delight. He is the one on whom I have placed every blessing. He's my beloved son. That didn't change the fact that Jesus' life was full of pain and disappointment and even death. But he was still God's blessed one which tells us that the blessing of God is something bigger and more profound than simply solving the problems of our pain and our difficulty that we experience in life. It is something more foundational and transformational because what we see in Jesus is that God has declared him to be the blessed one and because he is the blessed one, what does Jesus do? He humbles himself and becomes the blessing for all people. Out of his own blessedness, he blesses all of creation. His story, the full story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension is what gives us blessing. In fact, what the scriptures tell us is that is the the one answer to the problems of this world is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And what it further tells us is that in the same way that God declares his blessing upon his son, He declares that same thing over the people of his son. Those on whom Jesus has bestowed his blessing are those who are called, this is my beloved one. This is my blessed one. This is my child. I'm pointing right down at this baptismal font. The baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ into his body says that we are his beloved ones. You are his beloved one in Christ. And the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that despite the difficulty of your circumstances, God has looked upon you with favor, not because you deserve it, not because you're better than other people, not because he's even going to rescue you from the challenges that you have, but because he delights to call you his blessed child and he has satisfied in himself every ultimate need that you have, the need for life, for forgiveness, for hope. Do you believe that? I think that's what John is trying to get us to see, that Jesus is this king of blessing. He's a gentle king who is bringing blessing. He is the king who is the blessed one who brings blessing. So what then does that mean? What does it mean for us to to follow this king of blessing? What does it mean for us to experience his blessings? Well, I think we can make two uh, applications to this. First of all, uh, we can see it as a a public blessing and a private blessing. A public blessing. Well, the first public blessing is that you are citizens of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and He has direct control over all things in this world. You are His child. And the application that He gives us is right here from Zechariah. 
Do not fear. It's a poignant message for those of us who live in America in one of the most anxious and curious and confusing election seasons in recent memory. To have God himself say to us, do not fear, is a powerful thing. Because what that means is that whatever place we thought that Christianity had in America, it probably doesn't. It maybe never did. But as we see the values and the priorities that many Christians have held dear get pushed further and further to the margins of our public life, there is the tendency to fear. There's the tendency for anxiety. There's the tendency to to fear what it is God is doing, but he is the one who is the king of this world, and we can say with confidence that in one sense, it does not matter who gets elected to lead our country. Whether we love them or whether we do not love them very much. Because we serve a king who will accomplish his priorities in this world. He will not leave one priority unfulfilled, unaccomplished. And we can live with confidence in the midst of an, in the midst of an uncertain public life. The corollary to not fearing is also that we would not run away, but that we would engage then public life. We would engage political processes. We would engage uh, the public square in any number of formats. In fact, did you see what it was that, that uh, the disciples did? Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness in the midst of walking into Jerusalem and this political and religious scene that was in upheaval, the crowds that on one minute were calling out Hosanna to Jesus and then four days later would call crucify, what, Je- what these people did is they continued to bear witness to Jesus. They bore witness to Jesus as the king of life. Isn't it interesting that it's the religious people in our passage, the chief priests, who are the most fearful. They're the most fearful about losing their central place within the culture. They're most, they're most fearful about losing attention, about losing power and control. And what does, it, what does it lead them to do? It leads them to plot murder. What God is saying to us in this is you have a king, do not fear. And go about bearing witness to that king. We are those who, even as a political minority, should be a life-giving minority to our land and to our government. We are called to be people who represent God's priorities, care for the weakest and the most vulnerable among us. Seeking justice, and righteousness, seeking people who would worship the Lord and honor Him with their lives in obedience, seeking peace and justice in our world. Those are the things that we are called to honor and to follow and to seek as those who are subjects of God. So there's a public blessing. We could say that we are to, in fact, be that public blessing. But there's a private blessing as well. And as Christians, we have to acknowledge that 
we have already received what we most desperately need, and that is that we have received the blessing of Christ. We have been called God's children, and by knowing that God has already acted on our behalf, we don't have to live a life of, of anxious graps, grasping, of trying to get whatever we can get. We can live a life of giving because we have what we need already. I saw this played out in kind of a funny, quirky way uh, this week in a news article about Kawhi Leonard. Um, Kawhi, basketball player for the Spurs. I really like him. And um, he's pretty good, like one of the best in the world. And uh, what the article was saying is despite his quality, he is quiet, he is demurring, he is not one for the limelight. He doesn't have a lot of endorsement deals. In fact, one of his favorite endorsement deals is with a restaurant called Wingstop. You may be familiar with it. And he, is an, he endorses Wingstop for two reasons. Number one, he says he's addicted to the habanero sauce. And number two is they give him free coupons. They give him coupons for free wings. This fall, he got, uh, he got upset because right in the same month that his $94 million contract kicked in, he realized he lost his book of coupons. <laughs> it's true. His agent had to call Wingstop and they quickly sent him more coupons for free wings. <laughs> There's something so beautiful about that that this is a person who is working hard, who feels like their job is to do this thing with excellence and succeed. He has ambition, and yet that hard work is not diluted and distracted by fame, by money, by power, by reputation. He seems to be undistracted from seeking that which he thinks he is called to do, which is to entertain people like us on the basketball court and do it well. You know, God is calling each of you to something. You are called to show forth his glory in your own life by your giftedness and your talents and your time and your possessions and to do so in a way that is undistracted by all of these other pursuits. You know the pursuits. Maybe for you young people, it's popularity. Simply being the most popular kid in school is a draw. Maybe for us a little bit older folks, it's the accumulation of wealth and security. Perhaps for our millennials, it's the, it's the accumulation of experiences and accumulation of relationships. All fine things, and yet those can be the things that actually delude us from doing that which God has already called us to do. And what we find in Jesus is he was, he was undistracted. He left the power and the wealth and the privilege and the honor and the authority and the comfort that was rightly his being the, third per the second person of the Trinity and came and became man as we even read about in Philippians 2 to humble himself to death. His being called the blessed one enabled him to be a blessing to all people undistracted by the things of this world, the acclaim, the wealth, that's our calling. Do you remember? This shouldn't surprise us. Do you remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? He said, Abraham, I'm calling you out. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all people. 
That is what our calling is. You have been blessed, so you will be a blessing. And that didn't seem, that humility, that lack of acclaim, that lack of grasping for his own comfort didn't seem to hurt Jesus at all, did it? Did you catch what the Pharisees said at the very end? So the Pharisees said to one another, you can imagine them looking at each other and throwing up their hands and saying, you see that you're gaining nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after him because Jesus was unencumbered by the anxious striving for other things that he was able to seek the blessing of God in this world. And the question for you and for me is, are you so encumbered by your anxious strivings that you are unable to live out of the blessings that God has bestowed upon you and the blessings that you are called to give in this world? Because that anxious striving is robbing you of the blessing and the joy that God has bestowed upon you already. He has said, you are his child. And you're robbing yourself by striving for all these other things. And when they saw Jesus, they said, the whole world's going after this guy. Everybody saw Jesus and they were immediately attracted to him because there was something about him that just proclaimed blessing. And they called out in a way they didn't even understand what they were saying. Blessed is he. Blessed is this one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is our calling. That is our calling to be the people of God's blessing who then are a blessing to this world. Privately, publicly, witnessing to the glory of Christ. Because as we give them Jesus, it will feel like the whole world is coming to him. The whole world is going after him. It will be our delight and our joy. We could be a people like that, a people of blessing because of our king of blessing. Let's pray that God would do that for us. Father, we ask that you would make us indeed people of blessing because you have blessed us so immensely. Father, we pray that you would do this for the glory of Christ. Amen. Parents, let me invite you to greet your children as they return from training in the pews.